On this episode of the Medusa Metacast, Rational Abstinence, Suffering. Let's dive in. Let's start this one off with some commentary on the ubiquitous nature of suffering that exists as a feature of being intelligent and self-aware primates. Not only because they're fun, but also because people get really moist in the crotch for quotes on the internet. Bring a towel. He who makes a beast of himself gets rid of the pain of being a man. Life is pain, Highness. Anyone who says differently is selling something. Do you not see how necessary a world of pains and troubles is to school and intelligence and make it a soul? In such condition, there is no place for industry, because the fruit thereof is uncertain, and consequently no culture of the earth, no navigation, nor the use of the commodities that may be imported by sea, no commodious building, no instruments of moving and removing such things as require much force no knowledge of the face of the earth, no account of time, no arts, no letters, no society, and which is the worst of all, continual fear and danger of violent death, and the life of man, solitary, poor, nasty, brutish, and short. Existence is pain to a me-seeks, Jerry, and we will do anything to alleviate that pain. So the quotes that I went through, whether they be by Samuel Johnson, William Goldman, John Keats, Thomas Hobbes, or from the episode Me Seeks and Destroy, written by Ryan Ridley on the TV show Rick and Morty, there seems to be some amount of appreciation that there is a consensus that existence in some way, at least to self-aware creatures, is largely comprised of suffering. The last one isn't technically relevant, because me-seeks aren't people. They aren't even cartoon versions of people. But if I can find a way to make a Rick and Morty reference, I'll do it. Clearly the notion that life, as we experience it, tends towards suffering isn't new. Nor is it a secret. An interesting consideration, though, is that life could tend towards suffering, but we could still have the lights off, or maybe slightly dimmed, so to speak. We could live absent the acknowledgement that our lives could exist in such a manner in numerous ways. The first situation could be that we could lack the requisite brain function, and by extension, the capacity to experience emotions in any manner at all, but exist nonetheless. Or, we could experience various emotions, suffering among them, without the ability to distinguish it from other emotions. Or, We could experience various emotions, suffering among them, without the ability to identify the context within which it becomes inflicted upon us. Or, we could experience various emotions, suffering among them, and be able to contextually identify the cause of it, but lack the ability to reflect upon or consider it as a feature of existence that could have been different. You'll notice the word could is ever-present. And this is because these states of existence are all hypothetical nonsense. It is a feature of human existence that not only do we have the requisite brain function to experience suffering, and we can distinguish it contextually from other emotions, but we can also discover the cause of it in many situations. We also possess the ability to reflect upon it and recognize it to be something that we don't enjoy and that we'd like to use a coupon to trade it in for an emotion of equal or lesser torment, Preferably lesser, but 
I'm not one to make judgments about your sex life. Even the situations where we are able to stave off the suffering, it's only ever temporary. When we identify the typical causes of it and try to minimize their impact on us, there's always another thing that emerges to remind us that we aren't getting off that easy. The fun part is that this is a rational process. Our innate ability to think about our emotional experience is inherently rational. Another way of putting it would be, being a human is bullshit. I'm not sure which one I like more, but the latter would make a better t-shirt slogan. So how exactly does being a self-aware primate with the capacity to reason contribute to suffering? In which ways are rational processes to blame for the suffering we experience to the extent that we'd be inclined to engage in rational abstinence? Let's go through it one step at a time, and we'll start with examining the process of thinking. To think of something is sort of a rational process. After all, ideation generally concerns some amount of recognition, whether it be tangible or otherwise, albeit I'll say that with a fair amount of hesitation. I've never been too comfortable being particular when it comes to breaking down whether or not the act of possessing a thought has a rational basis, because it's deeply in the realm of abstraction. Perhaps someone can enlighten me one day. To think about something, I would say, is most certainly a rational process. To consider that which something is, whether it be a quality or a tense or a context, is to engage in an examination of it. When we direct our thoughts towards something to serve a particular function, even if the purpose is just the direction itself, we are engaged in a rational process. This may seem like I'm just using carefully crafted word combinations to further an argument, and to a degree, I am, but I also believe it makes sense. This act to direct our thoughts towards something, whether it is an examination, a process, an approach, or whatever the case, is being done to produce deductions, or to produce information, so that we may make deductions, and this is a rational process. Why would this process, seemingly innocuous and perfunctory, cause us so much suffering? I have some thoughts. The overarching themes that you'll see woven into my thoughts as I elaborate are that thinking is hard and unpredictable. The difficulty we experience while attempting the activity deters us from moving forward, especially in an age of participation trophies, and our lack of control over its trajectory and aftermath is a powerful deterrent. Who wants to do the hard thing and then feel shitty after? Makes sense to me. But something I've come to learn in life is that everything important is hard. Let's bang them off one at a time, like your mom in a glory hole. You start thinking about something, and before you know it, you have a startling realization that seems so obvious that you're horrified you didn't realize it sooner, and you start to question your own intelligence. How have I been alive this long and not realized this? Does everyone else know? I can't ask them. They'll think I'm dumb. Before you know it, you start to consider exactly how many other things you've yet to realize in your life, and you quickly dispense with thinking before your mind unravels and you become a weeping mess. What's on Instagram, you think to yourself. Time to get that dopamine hit and forget about my anxiety-ridden life for a while. Mmm, delicious. Contrary to that point, you may start thinking about something and quickly realize that despite your assumptions about your grasp of something you believe to be fairly straightforward and obvious, you don't know anything about it. You then do yourself the disservice of cementing this fact 
by comparing it to other things that you actually know about to further your humiliation. How do I know nothing about this? I do it all the time. Am I stupid? Do other people know it? I can't ask them. They'll think that I'm dumb. In both situations, we experience the redress of our ego and seek to preserve what remains of it in silence. Distinct from measures of realization or ignorance, there are thoughts that can remain unresolved forever, and they enjoy sneaking into other subject matter when you least expect it. You start thinking about how you don't go outside enough. It's warm tonight, so maybe I'll go out, lay on the grass, and look at the stars. That'll be nice. I wonder how full the moon will be tonight. Closer to a fingernail, or closer to a perfectly round cheese wheel? For the uninformed, the moon is made of cheese. Sometimes I forget how vast the universe is, and how the little glowing spots on the night sky are really giant in size compared to me. And compared to the Earth. Huh. That's funny. I forgot how tiny and insignificant I am in the grand scheme of things. Oh god, am I insignificant? I am insignificant. Nothing I do even matters. Why do I even do anything? I need a drink. You're sitting there, minding your own business, and your brain decides to violate your comfort. The cognitive stops on our way to the horror of an existential crisis vary, but it's a fairly common phenomenon. The rational abstinence is further incentivized if this exact thing happened to you last night, and you really aren't keen on a repeat. No thinking today. I'm good. Then there's those times we weigh options, plan for our future, or try our best to navigate a dilemma, and often we recognize exactly how little control we have over the outcomes, or what placed us in the position in the first place. Why do I even have to do this? How did I get here? Does this ever stop? Even if I do my best, it'll still be out of my hands. Relying on others to do the right thing is horrible. I like to describe people as being far less powerful than we'd like to think, but far more influential than we could ever imagine. Power and control are virtually synonymous in most circumstances, but being influential is different. To be influential is to have the power to incline someone to think, feel, or do something. There is only a potential, not a certainty, and even when you incline them, there may not be any follow-through. Influence is many steps removed from power, but it can definitely change the trajectory of anyone's life. I have both taught and been the student in courses discussing suicide, and a myth that is typically dispensed with early on is that of introducing the subject of suicide to someone who appears to be experiencing helplessness or profound sadness. If you believe someone to be having thoughts of self-harm or suicide, asking them directly if they're thinking of suicide is recommended. It will not plant the seed in their head. It makes it safe for them to talk about. The myth is that people may give them the idea to take their own life where it may previously have been absent, and you may be putting them at risk. This is just not true. There is much that could be covered in this regard, but I'll make my point succinctly. If someone's life is filled with what they believe is unresolvable turmoil, if suicide was an option, it has already been on their mind. Do you really think you're so powerful as to mention suicide to someone, and their internal dialogue may go something like this, Hey, I never thought of that. Time to kill myself now that you mentioned it. It doesn't work that way. You're not that powerful. 
you actually have far less control over other people and life in general than you may think. But what we can do is account for and try our best to influence others whilst recognizing that ultimately, we don't have dominion over virtually anything. That is, if influence is something you're even interested in. Many people are happy just living and let live. Problem solving or planning can be taxing because it reminds us of how little control we have in life. For the sociopaths out there, my recommendation isn't to account for the lack of control by manipulating circumstances. This would be strategic, albeit ultimately unethical for numerous reasons. As a result of these painful reminders, we will often prefer to go with the flow. Our final one I'd like to mention is our fear of accidentally opening the door to the dark side of your humanity. The dark side of our humanity can be harrowing in two ways trying to account for it in our thoughts by either succumbing to it or absolving ourselves of it, and the recognition that such a part of us exists, especially if it's a new experience. Why the fuck am I thinking that? Is that normal? Is there something wrong with me? Don't they lock people up for thoughts like that? I don't know how consoling my words will be, but let me tell you, it's normal, and I know how dark it can get. It's almost embarrassing how terrifying our thoughts can be while we appear normal, for lack of a better word, to the rest of the world. To no one's surprise, though, despite every single human being having these thoughts, we virtually never follow through with them. Don't be concerned that you have these thoughts. Start to be concerned when you're making plans to carry them out. This means that you should speak with someone. Plus, the secret is out now. So don't hide it from me. I don't need you to. If you care about no other function of reason, then I would expect you'd want not only an opportunity to speak or act, but to possess a mind that actually has something meaningful to say or do. Reason is one of the things that elevates us as being more than just any other animal on this planet, and it plagues us with the suffering of being aware of many things that perhaps you'd rather not be if you'd ever been given a choice. Your capacity to reason is going to cause you to suffer regardless. You may as well wield it as a tool and sharpen it so you can start to carve solutions into the problems that exist precisely because it does. There's no escape from it, and it causes us suffering. But the more you do it, and the better you get at it, the less you suffer. At least, we hope so anyway. In the next discourse, I will cover the third reason why we engage in rational abstinence, and I have given it the moniker royalty, where rather than discuss a shortcoming of reason, it will be about a competing tool we possess, emotions. This episode was a recording from my website under the discourse tab. I will be releasing the final episode on rational abstinence on royalty sometime in the next couple weeks. Currently, Derek and I have a conversation tentatively scheduled for later this week, and hopefully we can get all of our technological concerns in order, and we can record an episode on the logical fallacy of equivocation, which is very timely in both of our estimations as far as the use and misuse of language deliberately to mislead or to obfuscate messaging in a way so that it makes it very difficult for people to understand one another and almost 
necessarily trip over certain words that will cause conflict. I also started a Twitter account, which I told myself I would never do, but I did it because I wanted to have a little bit of a creative outlet, which is that I have taken the book The Art of War by Sun Tzu, and I have parodied it by redoing it word for word under a new title that I call The Art of Tyranny, which I believe is very present in our modern times. And I have been releasing different images where I have taken excerpts from the book, modified them to reflect what I believe are the modern temperaments associated with power and the achievement of certain goals that people that seek power hope to gain and the justifications that they tell themselves and that they tell others. So if you're interested in that, you can always follow me. It's called The Art of Tyranny. And uh, I hope maybe you'll at least get a laugh of it. If you're familiar with the book, then it probably will be more resonant with you. But if not, then maybe you'll just find what I find particularly ridiculous and funny. Uh, Also ridiculous and funny, but I I might be alone on that one. But I'm going to do it anyways because it's fun. That's it for this episode. This is Matt from the Medusa Metacast signing off. Until next time viciously pursue truth with courage and kindness. Take care of yourselves and one another. Goodbye.